Gratitude and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness explores assisting those in grief, the gratitude that keeps us connected, and the greatness we achieve in helping our community heal. I'm your host, Sarah Shaul. When you meet Rashida, it's surprising to learn that she's a police officer. Her unique position with the Portland Police Bureau allows her to serve as a community organizer and healer for families struggling through traumatic events. I had the pleasure of speaking with Rashida about her assignment and what it looks like when the police serve as social workers. I grew up in Northeast Portland in the early 90s. The crime rates were ridiculous. Lots of drugs, lots of gang violence, lots of community violence. There were plenty of nights where there was gunshots ringing out in my neighborhood. And my mom taught us to get under something hard and just duck and cover and stay there until the shots stopped. And that was a routine. It was a way of life. It happened so frequently that we didn't get scared oh, it's happening, let's do what we're supposed to do, which is to get under something hard and don't get up until the gunshots stop. Police were in our neighborhood every day. There was not one day (laughs) that I can remember not seeing lights and hearing sirens in my neighborhood. I was raised to not like the police. My mom made it really clear that police don't like Black people. They will shoot you. They will kill you. Run away from them. She made that really clear. For me, I was just attracted to everything that they did as police officers. So I was always in this constant state of confusion where I trust my mom because she's my mother. She keeps me safe. I believe everything that she says. But then on the flip side of every time I have an interaction with a police officer, they're kind to me. They give me sticker. They give me (laughs) stickers, you know, when I'm chasing behind them and they're chasing behind a bad guy. And I'm like, hey, officer, can I have a sticker? And they're like, kid, go back and I'll bring you one when I finish what I'm doing. But they were never rude to me. They were always kind. We had an officer that was in our class teaching a program called Great at the time. He was awesome. He showed me all the tools and not just me personally, but the class, all of his tools and explained what his job was. And so now I had this police officer that looked like me. He was a Black officer. And in the early 90s, I had never seen a Black officer. I didn't think that was anything we could do especially considering that I'm not supposed to talk to you and I'm not supposed to look at you. Wow, a Black police officer. And he was nice and he was kind. So I had his version of what a police officer does. And he's from my community. He looks like me. And then I have my mom, who's my boss, tells me what to do and educates me, telling me something different. And so for so many years, I was so conflicted, but I was always attracted to police because in our neighborhood, when they were around, the people that were bullying us, the people that were shooting up our neighborhood, the people that were robbing and breaking into homes, they left. They left the park. They left the block. And then we could be kids. And Mm. so although I was confused, that part was always clear to me that when the police were around, we could be kids. It was safe. There was no gunshots. Throughout the years, I've always gone back to, I want to be a police officer, but obviously you want to make your family proud. I never wanted to disappoint my mom. And so it took me growing and being courageous enough to say, I need to follow my dreams because I need to do what makes me happy 
And I want to make a difference. I want to make a community safe for that kid who's hiding under his bed because there's gunfire outside, because bullets are flying through their window. I want to be that officer to inspire someone else. And so I finally made the decision and I applied to Portland police and I got hired. And initially I didn't receive a lot of support from my family, but throughout the years, they have come such a long way and I am so proud of them. And I am so thankful and so grateful to have the family that I have. Tell me about your role at the police bureau. So along with being a police officer, my current assignment is as the crisis response team coordinator. We go by CRT. This program was established in the early 90s in response to the high number of gun violence and just community violence in general that was impacting, at the time, the African-American community. And the Portland Police Department decided that they needed to do something more. Obviously, we're showing up and we're doing the police aspect. We're doing the investigation. We're making arrests if necessary. But there was no follow-up. There was no connecting of resources to the victims or the families. And so we would give our business cards and we would leave. A courageous officer decided that Portland needed to do better. She was able to create this program with the help of a lot of community members to basically assess the need of our community and try to fill that void. And so that is how the crisis response team was born. And we're still in the community. Thankfully, we've expanded. And now we focus on all communities because our goal is to be inclusive and understand that trauma impacts every community. And so how do we best respond with people that understand how scary trauma can be, but also have an understanding of the culture of the specific communities that we're helping? How much does CRT take up of your duties? I am 100% assigned to CRT, and I do have an additional officer that is detached, Officer Madison Caesar, and he gets to help me out occasionally because we are on call 24-7. Obviously, we know bad things happen at all times. There's no way for us to know when that bad thing is going to happen. And so as the coordinator, we respond along with our community volunteers who come from all different walks of life, and they're able to be that support person for the families in need. So as the coordinator, we oversee the response. We coordinate which responders are the best to respond to that particular community. Sometimes there's language barriers. So being able to say, we're going to send someone that is able to speak this language so that they can interact with the family and be a support, not only for the families, but for the officers and maybe even help in interpreting things because that's really, really important. And so just being able to fill those small voids. I think the unique thing about Portland is we were one of the first police agencies to fill this need and to be creative in the way of how do we help these communities so that way they don't continue this cycle of violence, right? How do we connect them with resources so they're able to get mental health care if that's what they want? How do we help them change their housing situation? How do we help them with relocation? Obviously, if there's someone looking for them and they're in a dangerous situation where they need a change of environment. And so we get to do that. And it is totally an honor because most of the families don't expect police officers to provide this service. They expect social workers to do that. And we get to do that. And we get to hopefully build that bridge between certain communities that haven't always had positive interactions with the police. So for me, it's an honor to be a part of something so innovative. Yeah, you really like your social workers, right. which is such a bizarre way to think of the police. Now you say we, but then CRT really is you. And you have another part-time person who kind of fills in when you're not 
working on it, right? As far as the officers aspect. So there's two officers that manage the program, if you will. And then we have 30 plus volunteers that are volunteers. They give their time. They're on call one shift a week and they respond at two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, eight o'clock in the morning. And so they're on call for those 12 hours. And then if there's a call out, then I would contact them. And based on the call, Either the officers can assist and go with the responders, or sometimes we just send a team of two responders, depending on their training and their experience, because we want to make sure that they feel comfortable enough to handle it. What we've done in the past is basically most of the high-profile cases, automatically an officer is going with those responders because we just want to be available. What constitutes a high-profile situation? Usually most of our homicides, those are always in the news. Traffic fatalities sometimes make the news. Basically, whatever the media picks up, it makes the fear bigger, right? It's not just the people impacted directly. It's not just the family of the victim or the family of the suspect. Now it's the community at large that know that their neighbor was murdered. So now that fear is just growing. And to have an officer be a crisis response coordinator on scene to be able to look at those things that a patrol officer is not necessarily concerned with. They're not necessarily concerned with the fear. In a situation, hypothetical situation, what are people concerned about? And how is your organization able to help them? Fear is, it looks so very different. We all are very expressive in our own ways, and we have ways of dealing with stress and coping with things that scare us. I'll give one example. There was a recent um, domestic violence homicide, and the family was on scene because the victim had called her family to let them know what was happening. And so the family called police. And while the police were doing the police part of their job to try to make that situation safe and hopefully save a life, our team was outside with the family. Our job at that point was to convey the information that was given to me from the officers, the information that they could release to hopefully let them know what was happening. Aside from that, we were able to coordinate a safe place for the family to meet, provide food, shelter, provide a bathroom, because it was a pretty long incident. Unfortunately, the victim was killed. Mm. And so on top of managing the fear of the family with that unknown, because they didn't know initially, because it hadn't happened yet, and to be able to sit with the family during that Mm. situation, it's intense because There's so many different emotions. There's anger, there's sadness, there's frustration, there's questions with the police. What are they doing? What are they not doing? And then there's more family arriving because they're hearing about what's happening. Being able to just be in the mix of that and allow them to tell us how we can help them, not just assume that they need these things and try to meet those needs, but listening and being open and being willing to basically meet any need that they have at that time, because what a terrible situation. That particular call, we were on scene for eight hours. We had eight different responders come out to assist. What an honor, unfortunate situation, but to be able to help the family. That was one example of kind of managing fear and then also assisting with the death notification and then assisting with resources after the fact. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot. That that we get to do. But just being able to see that, okay, based on this response, this is what I could offer the family. And just being able to think about that because sometimes people freak out. They don't think about those basic needs. They don't think that, wow, this family's been outside for eight hours. Maybe they need a restroom and maybe they don't want to leave. So trying to coordinate a close enough restroom so that way they can still be on scene and be a part of this. 
because they didn't want to leave their loved one, right? So they want to be on scene. They want to be in it. And some people don't understand that. They're like, I wouldn't want anything to do with that. But that's not your loved one on the other side of that yellow tape. So you couldn't even understand. So to be able to show up, not ask questions as far as why the family's here, why they're staying on scene, why aren't they going home? No, it's understanding that this may be the last time that they catch a glimpse of their loved one. You are so amazing in how you express the heart of the police. Thank you. (laughs) Well, your heart in particular, but I think this is really important work in expressing that, yeah, police officers have a job to do, but what your organization, CRT, does really brings heart to that. To say that you're thinking about, you know, the needs and the feelings of people involved is really amazing. I mean, at, at the same time, I'm also struck by that detail. Like, so what do you do? Do you bring a porta potty over or do you find the closest restroom that they can use? I mean, what do you do? So every situation is so unique depending on what area you're in. Luckily, with my job, I get to go to a lot of community meetings where you make connections. And so with that situation, I was able to make a connection with the school principal and he was able to unlock a school. Wow. Right? I mean... How amazing is that? So not only is it the police doing these things, but it's community members that are available to help. The school administrator was amazing. He unlocked the gym. He gave me the key. He said, use whatever you need. So that wasn't just CRT. That's the community realizing that this terrible thing just happened and then coming together to help. Yeah. Not judging, not asking why. Let's put everything on pause and let's figure out how we can help. So CRT arose out of the need for the predominantly African-American community in North, Northeast Portland to have more social worker style resources that are delivered through the police department. Right. It's grown to cover everyone and all kinds of trauma, even car accidents. I mean, it's not just gun violence and that sort of thing. There's also now a Hispanic CRT, a sexual minority CRT, and Asian Pacific Islander CRT. Now, is that all under the same umbrella or are they separate organizations? No, they are all under the same CRT program. Initially, this program was, like you mentioned, started uh, for the North Northeast community. And in the early 90s in Portland, the North Northeast community was predominantly African-American. And so due to the high number of gang violence, gun violence, community violence, the need arose and the community members got together along with Victoria Burton, who was the officer that started this program at the time, and realized the need and said, let's create something beautiful. And so once that happened, then Victoria started getting calls from other communities and they were like, well, we want this program too. We have gun violence, we have gangs, we have community violence. And so it kind of just grew. And through the years, we've stopped using the groups because our goal is to be inclusive. We have Caucasian volunteers that are in the North Northeast group because they lived in Northeast and they wanted to help. Then it just got so complicated that it's like, well, let's get rid of all of those labels and let's just be the crisis response team. Diversity is important. It is so important to have people represented from every community. That way you can show up, you can speak to your need, and you can educate the people on the team that don't necessarily have that understanding. So we don't use the titles at all. We do make sure that if there's a language barrier, 
if there's a person from a particular group that we feel could benefit the situation, we definitely make sure that that connection is made. We do have representatives from almost every community. And I'm so proud of that because again, there's questions that I have sometimes that I just don't understand. And so I'm able to call them up and say, hey, I have this question and it's not offensive because they know my heart and they know I just want to provide the best service to this family that I'm serving, but I just don't know. We just have a really open and amazing team that one, they're willing to educate the team as far as what they bring to the table. Your organization really runs on volunteers. Yes. You're a coordinator and you're training people. Yes. And you're showing up. What's a common trait amongst the volunteers? So we have an amazing group of people. And I joke with him and I say, we only take awesome people. (laughs) If you're not awesome, you can't be on the team. But honestly, I feel like people that gravitate towards this program are truly people that want to make a difference. They come in with an open heart. They come in with an open mind and they're willing to learn. And I think that is the biggest requirement. Sometimes people think of situations and they judge. They think this only happens to a certain person. That's not the case. Violence happens to everyone. Violence impacts every community. To have volunteers that are open and that are willing to learn and not judge is huge. And to check their biases, you know, I don't know everything and I want to learn. I've never interacted with these people from this country, but I'm willing to help and I'm willing to learn. And if I make a mistake, please let me know and I will apologize and correct it. We have people that are from so many different communities that it just blows my mind and it makes me proud because our meetings, we're constantly learning because we bring our experiences and through those experiences, both good and bad, we can educate the other people on the team. So that way, if they're in a similar situation, one, they're courageous enough to stand up for someone. And two, they're able to check themselves and pull back and apologize if they're doing something wrong. And so I feel like it's just a great group of people. Our youngest volunteer is 23 and our most experienced volunteer is in their 70s. So how amazing is that to get such a wide variety of life experience? So what makes a 23-year-old want to be a part of your team? I think our program is the best kept secret. People see what we do if you're on the receiving end of our services, which sucks, right? Because that means something terrible has happened to you or your family, so you get to meet our team. Yeah. But other than that, it's through those shared stories where those family members are saying, oh my goodness, this amazing group of people came and they helped me. They made a terrible situation better. They made it bearable. I don't know what I would have done without this team. And not just me. This is the feedback I get from my volunteers, It's through those shared stories where people are like, CRT, what's that? I want to be a part of that. Because especially with everything going on in the world, people understand that people are hurting. People want to help. And so this program is just one of those avenues where you get to show up and you know, without a doubt, you are making a difference in someone's life. We respond to hospitals for people that have been injured by gun violence or stabbings or any kind of injury that was violent, we'll respond to the hospital and support the family. Some of our communities have had terrible experiences with police officers. So I have to own that when I show up with a gun and a badge. I have to own that, although I'm acting in a social worker capacity, I still have a gun and a badge. And so people still have their assumptions. I'm a police officer, right? And I do make that clear. But to be able to show up 
And this one family recognized the CRT and said, oh, you're you're replacing Marcy Jackson, which is the officer prior to me that was in this position for 12 plus years. To be able to know that it was through that connection that allowed the family to trust me is huge. Yeah. And we're talking about building bridges. We're talking about community policing. This is community policing at its best. Yes. From my experience, definitely. Yeah. This is heavy work. Oh, yeah. What do you prescribe for your volunteers? And what about, what do you prescribe for yourself? We talk about self-care all the time. We meet once a month as a team. Our focus is self-care, understanding that if you're not taking care of yourself, you're no good to anyone else. But it goes deeper than that. Understanding that our responders, they have a life outside of responding. So we check in frequently because sometimes there's deaths in their family, not violent, but there's the death and that's a loss and that impacts the service that they're going to be able to provide. We had one responder that was responding to a hospital and they told me that my loved one passed away at this hospital and I haven't been back since. And I said, oh my goodness, thank you for telling me that. If you're not able, totally okay. And they said, no, I'm fine. I just want you to know. So that way, if you notice something different in me, that is why. And then we can deal with that. And then there was another situation where I was uncomfortable when I was with a new responder and we went to the hospital for a young child that was struck by a vehicle. Seeing a little body in a bed was not okay for me. And so being able to let my teammate know that I'm going to let you take this one because I'm of no use right now. This is making me think about my daughter. And so I'm not going to be able to help. But I can get water. I can get food. I can get blankets. I can do anything else. What we talk about is just being able to, one, identify your triggers. Be aware of what sets you off, what makes you sad, what triggers you. Because once you're aware, you can let people know. So that way, if it does kick in, then you know how to respond and let your teammate know. Because if you need to swap out and not be the main contact person interacting with the family, then we can do that. Portland is very small. So sometimes you may be related to this person. So being able to feel comfortable enough to trust your teammate to say, I can't be here in CRT capacity. So we need to call someone else because I want to support my family and I'm not able to do both. So when it comes to self-care, you have to know your triggers and be willing to talk to them and let your partner know. The other flip side of that is having things that we do on a regular basis to check in. Some people go to therapy and counseling, and that is great. Some of our responders call me. We don't call it therapy, but we like to check in, and we call them check-ins because it's not threatening. It's, again, bringing services and providing them in a way that allows people to feel comfortable. I work out a ton because that is what works for me, and it is very important. So I work out five times a week minimum. I don't want to. In fact, this morning, it's 5 a.m., and I'm like, it's dark. And I'm like, why am I getting out of bed? It's so cold. But I understand that if I have these things in place and I'm doing my part, that's going to make me be the best responder, the best coordinator, the best mother, the best police officer, the best community person. So as long as I'm keeping those things in line, that helps for me. I meditate. And sometimes it's as simple as make sure you drink water today. It starts with self-maintenance. Yes. Whether it's drinking water, exercise. Right. 
I feel like sometimes these words that we throw around, it scares people. So they think, oh, I need to schedule a day at the massage. I need to go. Well, if you can, great. I would love that. Yes. But you want to start with small things that you can do every day Mm -hmm. because that's going to keep you in alignment. And if it gets bad, then obviously you have those major things that you can do, like going to get a massage, going to the coast, going for a walk. But it doesn't have to be anything extravagant. It could be those small things on your lunch break, going to walk for 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. That makes a huge difference. Yeah. You know, you go into a crisis situation and you preempt further crisis. Can you share a little bit about how you do that? Obviously, it's hard to show with research what crimes we're preventing by responding. But a lot of times, some of this community violence stems from a need, an economic need. And so honoring that and realizing that that solves problems, like that does help if we're able to connect some of these young people impacted by crime to jobs, to counseling. With electrical assistance, a lot of people need assistance to pay their light bill. All these small factors stress people out. Sometimes that leads people to do things that they maybe shouldn't do, obviously, but they're doing it out of need. And not to say every crime is based on a need, right? And I'm not justifying it, but just realizing that there's lots of people in society that live differently than what we're used to. And just acknowledging that and not judging them for that, not judging them for living a different lifestyle, but showing up and saying, how can we help? If you're willing to change and you want to change, how can we help? And then connecting them with the resources. And that's a huge piece because historically, I'll speak about it in the African-American community, counseling therapy is frowned upon. It's unacceptable. It's not encouraged. Why is that? It's just the way you're brought up. It's like you believe and we're taught that family business is family business. So if you're struggling, if you're being abused in the house, whatever happens in the house stays in the house. And you just need to be strong enough to deal with it because that's life. And so when you talk to some of these families, even in other communities, I've had conversations and they're like, oh my gosh, it's the same in our community. That's frowned upon. So how do I convince someone that has been taught that therapy is bad? Therapy is for the weak. How do you present that in a way that is acceptable and that at least encourages them to even look that way? And how do you do that? And so what I've been able to do is find community organizations that are not typical. Most people, if you have a stigma against something, if you're afraid of something, you're not going to go towards that willingly. You're not going to call this 1-800 number and set up an appointment with a therapist for a number of reasons. One, because you probably don't know how. Two, because it's not okay. And so if you're able to connect this person with a therapist that is a community-based therapist that is willing to meet you where you are, that seems reasonable to me. Yeah. And it's more of a conversation versus therapy. Yeah. And I think it's all in the way that we present things. And I feel like even as a community, understanding that people don't feel comfortable going to a mental health office and sitting down with a therapist. So how can we provide that service? We still need to assist those people. And that's the thing that I love about this program. The Portland Police Bureau said, hey, there's a need And we understand that this need is here. And people aren't going to come to us for help for a number of reasons, historical as well as present. So how about we send someone to them? How about we send someone to them that understands their culture, that is patient, that is kind, that is loving, 
And not judging. And not judging. And that's what the Bureau has done. And so my hope is that other community agencies begin to think outside the box because every community deserves to be connected with resources and to have resources that are accessible to them in the way that is accessible to them. Were you handpicked for CRT? <laughs> you just seem like the perfect So I was not. And a lot of people ask that. When I saw the position announcement, it just read so beautifully. It was a page and a half long. So there was a lot of duties that it entailed. But the biggest thing that stood out was community relations. That is why I became a police officer, is to bridge that gap between my community and the police. You mean I get to do this full time? You mean I get to go out there and bridge this gap full time? Sign me up. Of course, I didn't realize it was on call 24-7 and all that stuff. But how amazing, because what I was doing when I was working patrol is trying to make those community connections while also responding to 911 calls. And as a district officer, you just don't have time to do both. You don't get to stop in schools and go play basketball with the kiddos or pass out stickers. You're just call to call because we're so busy. And so the fact that I could do this full time really attracted me to this position and just understanding the history of this program. And I just felt like what an honor to be able to step in this program and try to make it better and to continue to carry the torch that other officers have carried and understanding that it would not be easy. And it hasn't been easy. But I do believe that anything worth doing, it's going to be work. But I am 100% willing to do whatever is necessary to bridge the gap because it's going to be so worth it in the end. It's going to be so worth it. I'm wondering if you've had experiences similar to what some of these people are undergoing Or is this all new territory for you? When I first got into this position, and I've been the coordinator for a little over two years, I had not had any experience with planning funerals, with death. So that was all new to me. It was foreign. For me, that was the biggest challenge of how do you relate to people that you haven't shared a similar situation? And that was was really difficult. On the patrol side of things, I was used to that aspect and I can relate to so many people because I've just had so many people close to me that have been in the jail system, been incarcerated, served countless years. So that I could relate on that level, that was relatable. So I knew how to treat people with compassion, how to speak to people and not judge them. So that came with me just because the way I was raised and the amazing family that I represent. Um, But as far as death and sadness and trauma and grief, I did not have a lot of experience with that. And so I've learned so much in this year. And then unfortunately, I did have a young cousin murdered. That was heartbreaking because now I was on the side with everyone else that I was helping. So you go from, wow, I'm just here to help to, oh my goodness, now I know. I was there to help, but now I feel it and you feel it every time. And so for me, It made this job difficult because you kind of go back to your trauma. You go back to your grief. You go back to your sad time, your traumatic incident. And what I've realized is that that's okay. Obviously, being able to put that 
away so that I can do my job and be there for that family. But sometimes it's helpful to share that story. Sometimes people look at me and they say, oh, she's a police officer. She doesn't get it. And for me to be able to say, no, listen, I get it. And I'm not saying I feel what you feel, but I get it. And I understand that that pain, it will be there forever. And yes, you will have good days and then you will have terrible days. And understanding that there's no time stamp on when you need to be finished crying and not feeling like you need to apologize for bursting into tears. That's okay. And so for me, I will say that, yes, that was a terrible experience for my family, but it was through this job experience that I was able to connect them with resources. And I just went into CRT mode from a distance. And that was amazing to me because had I not had this job, I would have only been able to help with the investigative part. Okay, you need to know the detective, you need a case number, and the detective will be able to answer all your questions. But that's the surface level. How do we pay for this funeral? What do we do? What are the steps? And how do you present that to a grieving mother in a way that's loving, that's caring, and that doesn't make her feel rushed to make a decision? Because understanding that we don't have a lot of time, but also understanding that the words you use in the way you describe things will stick with this mother forever. It's sad when you lose someone. It's worse when you lose them violently because you have all these questions. Well, what if? Well, why did this happen? Well, why was he there? Well, the police could have gotten there quicker. And you just have all these questions that there's no answer. And even if you did have the answer, it wouldn't take away the pain. So understanding that it's okay to have questions and it's okay to have pain. And it is okay to think about your loved one every day. And that's okay. Yeah. You've been doing this work a while now. Is there a particular story that stands out in your mind that you'd like to share? So I get to do a death notification and I'm by myself because we didn't have a team established when I first got into this position. And so I'm doing this death notification and I am alone and I walk into the house and I ask the mom to sit at the kitchen table and I see a birthday cake on the table. It completely throws me off because there's so many thoughts. It just said happy birthday. It didn't say a name. So many thoughts are going through my head. I'm able to tell the mother what had happened to her child. She obviously noticed that I kept staring at the cake because it was, how do you not stare at this birthday cake, not knowing if this was their birthday? And luckily it wasn't that particular child's birthday, but it was their siblings. And again, I think that it's equally terrible because now the sibling has the birthday of their (laughs) older siblings, day he was killed. And so how do you share that day and still have joy? I got to sit with that family for hours as I was leaving. I can't remember if it was the mom or the mom's friend. She turns to me and she says, and you're a police officer, right? I said, yeah, I'm a police officer. I am. She's like, you are so good at your job. (laughs) And literally tears just started coming down my face. And I was just like embarrassed because I tell the responders, obviously you want to try to remove yourself from that situation because it's not really ideal. It was so much for me in that response, in the totality of everything. And then it was just so beautiful. And we just embraced. And then I've been invited back to birthday parties. We've exchanged Christmas gifts where I'm like sending things in the mail to the younger siblings. It's been beautiful. 
obviously were brought together because something terrible has happened. I don't think the families realize the impact that they have on the responders because we share these stories during our meeting and it's not always me sharing them. Sometimes they're responders. It brings joy to me and it allows me to continue to do the good work that needs to be done because the community deserves awesome people to be there during their worst times. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual in Portland, Oregon. This episode was produced and edited by Jack Saturn and me, Sarah Shaul. The music was by Samantha Jensen. Visit us online at griefgratitudegreatness.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at griefgratitudegreat. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a review. Your feedback helps our show and helps us find new listeners. If you have a story of your own that you'd like to share or topics you'd like to hear more about, we'd love to hear from you. Call or text our show at 503-454-6646 or send us a message via the contact link at griefgratitudegreatness.com. Be sure to let your friends know about us and join us next time. We look forward to sharing more conversations with you.